Well, this year I uh, went to my very first ever Celtics game. I'd never actually been to one before, uh, but someone gave us tickets. And, and not only did I go to a Celtics game, but I got to sit in the box seats. So there's like the regular seats were all, you know, common people sit. And then there's, you know, the box seats are above that. It's kind of like flying first class on an airplane. It's really nice. There's, uh, you, you know, it's like you got a little room to yourself. There's nice, comfortable seating. There's a little refrigerator. You can get drinks, you know, and hang out and eat. And uh, I don't, if you've ever been to a Celtics game, it's more than just a game. It is an entire show. I mean, it really is a show. There's the lights and the music and... Uh, you know, even the way they introduce the Celtics is a bit of a show. The, uh, you know, they introduce the other team first, right? And you kind of get polite golf claps when the other team comes out. But then when the Celtics come on, they drop the lights, the spotlight hits the middle of the room, the, you know, the pump-up music starts. And one by one, they begin introducing the Celtics players into, into the uh, Boston Garden Stadium. And, you know, the crowd erupts and goes wild. And, you know, I was thinking it has to be a fairly unique experience in life to come into a cavernous room like Boston Garden with a spotlight on you and thousands and thousands and thousands of people screaming and cheering because you walked onto the floor. It's got to be sort of a, a weird thing. But that's how we acknowledge and welcome and introduce people uh, in our culture, and in our, you know, that's how societies do this. This is how our society does this. When famous people or heroes or important people or even athletes come in, you know, there's always fanfare, and there's sort of a big introduction of the person. Um, you know, in a couple months here, we're going to have two presidential candidates. Uh, presumably, President Obama will be the Democratic nominee. The Republicans will figure out who they want as their nominee. There will be two conventions, and at these conventions, uh, these conventions build to the theatrical moment when the candidate is presented to the convention. And it is theater. I mean, there is music, and the balloons go up, and the ticker tape comes down, and it is staged to present the person to the world, and everybody sees them and cheers. Or, or, you know, in in a few weeks here, we'll have the uh, Academy Awards, the Oscars. And when those A-list actors come to the Oscars, you know, they show up in a limousine at the red carpet. And they walk down the red carpet, and everybody's taking their picture, and all the attention is focused on them. And some of them will even get to go up on the stage and, and receive an award. And the whole place will erupt and cheer for these people. And, and all the people at home who are watching the Oscars across the country, all, you know, 217 of them, they'll, they'll all be cheering and yelling, you know, to, to congratulate these people who are getting these awards. Because that's what we do with famous people or heroes or stars. Which is why the Bible story of Jesus' birth that was read for us just a few minutes ago is such a weird story in a certain way. Because here we have Jesus, the Messiah, uh, the Son of God, the Savior, the one whom the whole Bible has been building up to throughout the whole Old Testament. There's been this growing and clarifying anticipation of the Messiah and the Savior coming. And he finally comes, and it is so not like a Boston Celtics introduction. You know, I mean, what, what adjectives would you use to describe the birth of Jesus? 
you know, maybe words like quiet, humble, invisible, unobtrusive, maybe clandestine. It, it's just a strange event. So I want to think with you about the story that was just read for us. And, and actually, we'll do a little, um, little trivia here. I'll, I'll give you guys kind of a trivia, especially any of you kids who are here listening to that story. I'm, I'm going to see how well you know the Christmas story. So I'm going to ask five kind of pop quiz questions about the Bible Christmas story. And each of these questions, uh, as we go through them, are going to highlight, I think, this theme that we find throughout the Christmas story of the quiet, secret, humble, low-key, under-the-radar way in which Jesus came into the world in the story of his birth. It's just not the way the world works, the way Jesus did it. So here's question number one. Uh, Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem, but they're coming from a certain town. Which town are they coming from? Any kids here got a clue on that one? Yeah. Yeah. Nazareth. Bing! That's right. Give that young man a candy cane. Yes, so Nazareth, which is where? Galilee, I guess. I mean, who's ever heard of Nazareth? You know, they, they came from nowhere. Nazareth is podunk nowhereville. You know, the, the first place, as far as we know, in all recorded human history that we hear about the town of Nazareth is in the Bible. Until that point, there's no other record of this town, Nazareth, which makes one wonder if it hadn't been in the Bible, if Nazareth might have been one of those little villages that came and went, and humans would never have had any record that Nazareth ever existed if it weren't in the Scriptures. Nazareth Nazareth is no place. Um, You know, you think if God were to send His Son into the world, if the Messiah were to rise, if the Savior were to come, He would have come someplace from, you know, clout, someplace you've heard of. Maybe Rome would be a good place to start. Or maybe uh, Alexandria, Egypt, a place of great learning, a place of the great library of Alexandria. Or, hey, maybe if you're coming to be the king of the Jews, maybe you ought to be born in Jerusalem. There's an idea where the temple is and the high priests are and the, the center of Jewish identity in the world, especially in those days. And maybe that's where you should have gone. But instead he comes from where again? Nazareth? Oh, I, no, I haven't heard of that. And, and that's how he comes into the world. It's sort of a uh, no place that he comes from. All right, here's the second question. His parents then, they go from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Why did they have to go from Nazareth to to Bethlehem. Does anyone remember again what, what it was that was making them go there? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah. I hear it whispering. The census. Yeah. There was a census. Caesar Augustus, sitting there eating grapes one day, you know, decided to decree a census, probably to, um, to increase taxation, was usually why the censuses were taken. And so uh, here's Caesar, a man who can say, let there be census, and there was census. It's amazing. And so Caesar speaks, and the whole world moves. Imagine that. A man speaks, and humanity moves. The whole empire begins to shift. And, and so also, Mary and Joseph had to leave Nazareth, and they had to go to Bethlehem. Did it matter that Mary was, like, super pregnant and that this was a little sketchy for her? No, it didn't matter. You know, because why? Because Mary and Joseph were nobody. They were total peasants. 
They, they, they were just numbers. They, they were just tax dollars before the Roman Empire. And so if Caesar says go, Mary and Joseph have to go because they have no influence. They have no strings to pull. They have no political clout. They're not wealthy. They can't send a servant to go do it and register for them. They have to go because when Caesar says go, you go. If you're nobody, you have to obey. And so this is where Jesus is coming to people from Nowhereville who are nobodies and then they finally get to, Beth, uh, to uh, Bethlehem. And, and where do they have to stay? Anyone remember where they have to stay? Any kids here? Yeah. Remember? What's that? A manger? Yeah, a stable. Good job. They, they had to stay in a stable. They had to play, stay in a place where cows and pigs sleep. You know, think about that. Why? Because there was no room. No room in the inn. You know, uh, when I was um, at the Celtics game, we had a guest come into the box. Uh, his name was Jojo White. Has anyone ever heard of Jojo White? Apparently a legendary Celtics player. I don't watch any sports, so everyone was like, Jojo White is here. Jojo White is here. And I was like, who's Jojo White, you know? <laughs> and he comes in, and everyone's like, Jojo. Like, oh, nice to meet you. And you know, and his hands are like this big, and he has a Celtics, you know, championship ring on, and, you know, he took it off and let us try it on and look at it, and, and, and you know, nicest guy in the world, but, but the thing is, you know, no one said to Jojo White, I'm sorry, do you have tickets? And, you, and if you don't have a ticket, you're not supposed to be in our box, because, you know, when you're somebody, you always have room. People will always make room for you if you're somebody. If you're somebody and you go to the big restaurant that people wait an hour to get into, you will not wait. Because if you're somebody, you always get in. There's always room if you have clout, if you're important. And here's the Savior of the world, you know, coming through Mary and and coming to the inn and they're saying, no room. It's like, does it matter that she's super pregnant? Maybe, you know, sending her out is not a good thing to do. No, they, they just say, get out of here. So no room. It's like, Nobody's from Nowhereville, no room. Go sleep in the stable. Go sleep with the animals. We have uh, chickens at our house, and uh, I have a chicken coop that I built myself. And, you know, chickens, uh, chickens are, they're messy. They, um, you know, that you can't toilet train them. They don't have enough brains to be able to do that. And so, the, the, you know, it's disgusting inside a chicken coop. I can't imagine sending a woman who is about to give birth to a chicken coop and just say, that's a good place for you to be. I, I mean, talk about having no pull. Talk about being a nobody to have to go to a chicken coop to be your, you know, birthing ward, first maternity room. I mean, really? That's crazy. Which leads me to the fourth question then. Uh, where did they put the baby Jesus when he was born? They laid him in a, say it again, manger. That's right. And what's a manger? It's, it's just a, it's a place where they put food for animals. It's a doggy dish. It's a really big doggy dish for cows and, and sheep. You know, it, it, that's where they put the baby Jesus. They cleaned out, presumably, the food, and they put hay in it, and they laid him in there. I mean, like, of all places to put a new baby. But that's where he had to be because there was no other place for him. 
because he wasn't coming in with fanfare. He wasn't coming in as an important person from the world's eyes. He was coming from Nowhereville with a couple nobody parents, no room in the inn, no good place to put a baby in a manger. And then finally, here's the last question. Who were in the story the first people to come and visit Jesus? Who were they? Yeah, way back there. Shout it out. The wise men. Close. Another one uh, over here. The three kings. Wow, strike two. Okay. (laughs) Way in the back. Shepherds. There we go. That's right. Good job, guys. And the shepherds. The shepherds came and they visited Jesus. Who were shepherds? Shepherds were nobody. Shepherds had no clout. They, They were... You know, shepherds weren't bad people. They just were kind of way down there on the social scale, on the food chain. They were way down. Yeah, the shepherds lived out in the field with sheep. You know, they did a job that had to be done. Somebody had to watch the sheep. And so we're thankful that they did the job. It's a dirty job. Someone has to do it. But, you know, shepherds weren't the kind of people that made it into the A-list soirees. Uh, Shepherds were loners. They're out there in the wilderness. They're dirty. They're with animals all day. They're not dressed nice. They're not the kind of people who are movers and shakers in the social circles in their communities. They're just kind of salt-of-the-earth people who are way out there. And these are the people who came and visited Jesus that first night, the shepherds. Um, You know, I was trying to think of an example of who a shepherd would be today, and and I was thinking maybe, maybe shepherds today would be like the people who pick up the trash on, you know, at your place, if you leave the trash out on the curb or if you have a transfer station, you know, the, the, the folks who get the trash. It's like, yeah, I'm thankful people do that job, but that's not a job that typically kind of bumps you up in the social status of the way our world looks at things. Or they, they might be like the guy who comes and pumps out your septic system. Or, or maybe, um, you know, the plumber who comes to your house and has to climb under the old New England cellar and get down there and work on pipes where it's all dirty and mildewy and spider webby, you know, and he's the guy underneath there on his side working on different pipes. It, it, it's not the kind of, you, you know, job that, it's a job that has to get done and you're really thankful there's people who are skilled to do it. But, but it's not the one where, where you, again, walk to the soiree and say, yes, I pump out septic systems for a living. And people go, oh, really? You know, it's more like, wow, did you wash before you came here? Because, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's who came to visit Jesus. So salt of the earth people who weren't high up on the, the scale. Imagine, ladies, if you had a baby and the first people, first person to visit you there in the, uh, the maternity wing wasn't, weren't grandma and grandpa, wasn't a husband. The first person to visit you was an orderly who worked in the hospital. Perhaps an orderly who was pushing the cart by and they had on the, you know, orderly's clothes and they had on latex gloves because they're picking up all the soiled whatevers and cleaning up the messes. And, and maybe this person comes in, maybe they're from another country and they're an immigrant and they don't speak English very well, but this is the job they could get. And they're coming to you saying, oh, new baby, can I hold baby? You know, and you're like, ah, okay, you know, I don't know you, I, you know. That's what it was like. These shepherds suddenly show up, these stinky field guys. And they're the first visitors. What a strange introduction of Jesus into the world. But the thing we have to tell about that Christmas story, the thing we have to notice is that God planned it that way. 
This was God's design. Remember, God told the shepherds to go visit Jesus. There was actually, technically, a kind of Celtics pregame show to the birth of Jesus. It was out in the fields where the shepherds kept over their flock, over their uh, watch over the flocks by night. The light shone around them, and they were terrified, and the angels came and sang, and there was music. And so, in some ways, it was sort of a big. Uh, shock and awe pregame show with lights and sound and music and announcements. But here's the point. That didn't happen in Rome to Caesar. That didn't happen in Alexandria to the sages and the scholars. It didn't happen in Jerusalem to the high priest. It didn't happen to King Herod. It happened to shepherds in some field somewhere. We don't even know where, just nearby. That's incredible. Why did God do it this way. If he really is the King of kings, the Savior, the awaited Messiah, the Son of God, why did he come in such an obscure, humble, hidden sort of way? Well, I think one of the things we see, especially as we go through the Gospel of Luke, is that God was telegraphing what Jesus' mission really was all about, which is that he was coming to save sinners, humble, brokenhearted poor in spirit, needy people like us. You know, remember, Jesus started low at his birth, but at his death, he ended way lower. I mean, you think like, wow, what a lousy way to start. You should have seen how he finished. He finished in the lowest possible way that a human being could finish in that cultural context, which was crucifixion. Crucifixion was reserved for the scum of the earth the dregs, the people who, who died exposed, hung, shamed, humiliated, suffering. It, it was something so horrible that in polite Roman soirees, you didn't even talk about it. It was, would be offensive to mention the word crucifixion or cross. It was so vile to them. And that's where Jesus died. You know, why did he die on the cross? And that's the incredible story of the gospel. He died for me. He died to take my place. He died to take my sins on himself. Um, Jesus is the the heavenly garbage man who came to do a job that someone had to do, and he did it. He took my garbage, my sin on himself on the cross. He, He came and pumped out the septic tank of my soul on the cross so that I could be clean. He's the orderly who came and cleaned up my mess. He humbled himself and took that low position. He was the shepherd who came to lay down his life for the sheep and to find the lost sheep like us and like me. And he was also the sheep itself that was sacrificed. As John the Baptist said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the Lamb who was sacrificed for our sins. And so Jesus came to because there was a dirty job to be done, someone had to do it. And frankly, God in human flesh is the only one who could have done it. He came to take away my sin. So that means <clears throat> that if you want to find God, if you'd like to know if there is a God, and if so, where would one find Him? That means that to find God, you have to go down instead of up. The way up is actually the way down, which totally flips conventional wisdom on its head. Conventional wisdom says, if I want to 
know God or become more spiritual or however you want to put it, I have to somehow work up. I need to start doing some things to better myself. Uh, hey, New Year's is coming. I need to make some resolutions. I got to stop doing some crazy things and I got to stop doing some good things, start doing some good things. I need to cut some things out of my life that are bad and I need to add some things to my life that are good. I need to work on spirituality or religion or I need to start volunteering in my community or I need to start you know, doing things to better and improve myself. And we often think that's how we climb closer to God without ever realizing that God is holy. We can never get up there on our own. And if we're climbing and climbing and climbing our way up, we're very likely to miss Jesus who will pass us going down. He went down. He went as low as you can go. The mysterious message of the kingdom of God is that to find God, you have to go down. You have to come to that terrifying yet wonderful place of saying, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I'm not good enough. I'm not clean enough. I don't have it together enough. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not religious enough. And, and I need a Savior. I, I need someone to take out my trash and to clean my soul and to forgive me. It's only as we humble ourselves and are brokenhearted and contrite that God actually meets us, not when we build ourselves up and become better and better in our eyes or in the world's eyes. Because that's where Jesus went. How do you fancy yourself? How do you envision yourself? When you think of your life and your soul, do you fancy it as put together, decent, clean, respectable? You know, not perfect, but pretty okay, and actually better than a lot of other people. Is that how you see your life and your soul? Or do you see your life and your soul as kind of If I'm honest, it's a bit of a mess. It's a bit of a stable. It's not perfect. There's sin, in fact. In fact, I know there's big problems. Which one is it? Let's remember where Jesus called home, where Jesus went. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow in awe before you because you are the king who went so low that you came so low that we could actually reach up and touch you. Lord, thank you for going all the way to the manger and from the manger going lower to the cross and from the cross going to the grave even lower still. And thank you that you rose again and that you are alive and that you welcome people who, who wherever we are, if we'll just come to you, Lord, you forgive us. And so, Lord, I just pray, Jesus, that you would uh, show yourself to us here, wherever each of us are at, Lord. Would you give us a glimpse? God, I pray that even for those here who aren't sure if this is true, who have questions, who have doubts, Lord, I, I pray, Jesus, they would catch a glimpse of you in their peripheral vision, Jesus, going down, and they would follow you. Lord, give us grace to be brokenhearted and to give up all pretensions of being spiritual or religious enough or good enough. Help us to cling to the cross. Lord, I pray for your grace and peace upon this people who are gathered here this evening. Lord, I do thank you for the kids here. Thank you for their, uh, just the, the, the fearlessness of kids to answer questions in a big group. Thanks, Lord, for their excitement. Thank you for their enthusiasm. And God, I pray, bless the children who are here tonight. And may they be filled up with a knowledge of you, Jesus, from a young age. 
God, thank you for uh, the families that are here. Thank you for every individual here. Lord, I do pray for those who are here tonight who normally would have somebody sitting next to them in the pew, but that person is gone. Lord, would you comfort them as, as they grieve? Lord, comfort us in our loneliness and our hurt as well as in our joy. And so, Lord, be with us now. We thank you for this evening. We lift all these things to you through the name of Jesus who went all the way down to reach us. Amen.